drop everything you're doing. I've got something big. This comes all the way from the top. This comes from the president of the company. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Like, what is this? What are we doing? He's like, we're putting QR codes on our displays. <laughs> and I'm like, what? We're putting QR codes on our displays. And he's like, yeah. Have you heard about QR codes? These things are going to be huge. They're going to be massive. Stop everything you're doing. And I'm like, where, like, where do we even begin to explain the stupidity of QR codes? What's going on, Brickstackers? As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and I'm back today with a brand new episode of Stacking the Bricks. If this is your first time joining us, this is a show about the small steps, the tiny wins, and the lessons learned along the way from real people that have started businesses selling products online. Creative people, just like you and me. And that voice you heard just a moment ago talking about QR codes is today's guest. His name is Nathan Johnson. And over the last year, I've had the opportunity to sit courtside and watch Nathan build a new business that at this point is supporting him and his family. It's allowing him to take time to travel, spend time with his new daughter. And what might surprise you and might even surprise Nathan to this day is that if you had asked him just a year or two ago if he'd ever thought that he would build a business selling tools and educational material to freelance and professional photographers, he would have told you that you're crazy. But hindsight is 2020, and it does make a surprising amount of sense when you see how everything added up over time, and you see all the work that Nathan has put in through each various stage. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode and hear how Nathan got his start. I got my start at Johnson & Johnson. I was doing marketing there first in Jacksonville, Florida, and then moved up to Philly. I mean, as you can imagine, it was, it was probably the most corporate environment you can possibly Imagine, you know, I was working on an, an old Lenovo laptop. I had zero technical background, and it was just a grind, man. I mean, it was it was a super grind. What did marketing in a corporate environment look like? Well, so with Johnson Johnson, marketing is kind of like the, the the hub of the wheel. So there was a lot of interaction with every single other department, and you owned the whole like P and L, the whole profit and loss statement. So there was like a lot of stress, uh, a lot of intensity, a lot of politics. It was it was very, very stressful. So I'm imagining that may have been part of what drove you to leave. Uh, yeah, that was definitely part of it. I mean, <laughs> it was, it, it was, it was that, but it was also, I mean, after working it for five years, I had touched pretty much every point of marketing and done kind of all the actual tasks that you can do as a marketer. And I looked at like my bosses and my boss's bosses and more and more, you actually did less marketing and it was more just putting out fires and, and dealing with the politics of people. And they were not happy, and I could not imagine myself being happy in that situation. And a lot of a lot of what made people successful wasn't the ability to be a good marketer or actually like have success as a marketer. It was their ability to be friends with the right people, essentially. So, I mean, there were so many instances where we would do something that, for marketing, and I'd be like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like, I remember vividly one day, I'm sitting in my cubicle, and my boss's boss like runs into my cubicle and says, hey, we've dropped everything you're doing. I've got something big. This comes all the way from the top. This comes from the president of the company. And I'm like, oh, awesome. Like, what is this? What are we doing? He's like, we're putting QR codes on our displays. <laughs> and I'm like, what? We're putting QR codes on our displays? And he's like, yeah. Have you heard about QR codes? These things are going to be huge. They're going to be massive. Stop everything you're doing. And I'm like, where, like, where do we even begin to explain the stupidity of QR codes? And, but it didn't matter. You know, you, you, you had to do it. You had to get it done. The president thought this was a brilliant idea. And so, like, that's what you're going to be working oh, on for the next couple of weeks. So the train's already left the station. I mean, it, it wasn't 
I don't want to paint it as all bad. I mean, I definitely learned a lot and had a lot of awesome experiences and met a ton of awesome people, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And the more that I did it, the harder it would be to leave. When did you decide to leave and, and what were you planning to do when you left? <laughs> yeah, great question. So my wife and I were actually vacationing in Hawaii and literally we both at the same time were like, yeah, I should leave my job. And it just, it's, I didn't have necessarily like an idea of what I was going to do. And people at Johnson Johnson, like didn't believe that they thought I had some, some evil genius plan of what I was going to do. I, I really did not. Um, I, I knew that I couldn't be there any longer. Kim had a stable job. She could support us. It was just the right time for us. And I figured I would kind of figure it out <laughs> as I went because I basically, I came back, quit the job and just started trying to learn as much as I could, essentially. I mean, I, I felt I was so behind in, in everything. So I got rid of my Lenovo. I got a Mac. I started, you know, catching up on all the things that I'd been missing out on for the past five years. And I ended. I spent some time in New York City actually working with a startup there. Uh, I spent some time helping out a couple other startups. And then I came to Indie Hall. Yeah. So you're learning new things. Is that learning sort of like the modern world of marketing? Is that learning programming, design? Like what were you actually studying when you're updating your skills? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of everything and it's and it's honestly been ongoing for the past five or six years. I mean basically everything that I've wanted to learn about, I've just gone ahead and like done it. Right. So that includes learning how to program. You know, I learned how to do iOS development. I learned HTML and CSS and then SAS and then Hamel and then Ruby and then, you know so kind of the whole the whole technology stack which was something that regardless of whether or not like I was going to ever use it was something that I felt like I had to had to learn to be able to be kind of in this world um, and it was something that I wanted to learn something that I have fun uh, actually learning so I learned that on the marketing side I realized pretty quick that a lot of the stuff I had I had learned marketing with J and J I hadn't actually done. So great instances, search engine optimization. Sure. I had paid agencies to do search engine optimization. I had looked over the plans. I had approved plans, but I had never actually physically gone in and done it. And it was like that for a lot of the marketing stuff that, that, that I did. What does that realization feel like? It feels like you're kind of starting over in a lot of ways. It, it feels like maybe you didn't understand it as well as you thought you understood it when you actually have to do it. So you sort of throw yourself into this voracious pattern of learning to do, learning to implement. You start implementing. Are you are you building something in particular or are you just sort of like practicing, throwing stuff at the wall, see what sticks? Yeah, so the, the, first, the first real big project that I did was something called Promofly. And that's what I was working on when I came into Indie Hall. And I did it with a friend of mine who was a Rails developer uh, down in Chattanooga uh, that I had grown up with. And Promofly was basically, if you've heard of Honey, which is a popular Chrome extension now, we were basically Honey before Honey was Honey. It was a bookmarklet, and then it was a uh, Chrome extension that lets you find coupon codes as you were shopping online. And I talk a lot with people who are in a similar situation as, as I am where they've worked in a corporate environment and they come out and they have this idea and they're going to start this big thing. And everyone always has like this grand notion of what it looks like to be an entrepreneur and this idea of all I have to do is come up with an idea that nobody else has got 
and then just implement it and then success is the next step. And my experience was that that absolutely isn't the case because even though we were able to grow and we, so we, we grew to almost a hundred thousand users. I didn't have any affiliate contacts. I didn't have any affiliate relationships. I didn't have any way of knowing how to, how to do that sort of thing. I was trying to develop, but also learn development at the same time. So everything was very, very slow. And just to be clear about the business model of Promofly and Honey and things, like you mentioned affiliates. So the business development part of this is not just the getting users, because the users aren't actually giving you money. That's right. It's the affiliate contacts and doing those deals. So you're kind of doing twice the work of selling once to an audience that's not actually going to give you money, but are prerequisite to get the affiliate deal that's worth it in the first place, right? Right, and and you have to convince the retailers that, that what you're doing is actually adding value to them and not just <laughs> giving people more coupons that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So it, it's actually a very, very tricky uh, thing to do. And the way that a company like Honey has done it is they just said, hey, screw worrying about affiliate, we're just going to basically perpetually raise money. Um, <laughs> and so that, so, <laughs> which, you know, what, what a great business model. But, um, and so I, I got to a point where I realized that in order for this to be successful, in order for Promofly to be successful, it would have to be a completely different business model and a completely different lifestyle for me than what I wanted. And so I think that there was this huge mismatch between my dream and what I wanted my lifestyle to be and the reason that I left J&J and then what you could actually do with, with Promofly. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What specifically was that dream? So the, so the dream, the dream was, was really to have freedom, freedom of time and place and space and what I worked on, freedom to be able to spend time with my family now to be with my, I have a one-year-old daughter, to be able to spend time with Ava, to help raise Ava, to be able to go on long vacations and just enjoy my family. That's really the dream. And, and also I think to, to be able to learn the things that interested me. I, I didn't want to be like in middle management the rest of my life where most of the skill set that I'm working on is, is the skill set of managing up and managing down. Uh, it sounds like there was an end somewhere along the way with Promo Fly. How did that? How did that wind down? Yeah, so uh, we were at a point where we were just about breaking even, but it was still taking a lot of my time, a lot of my my partner's time, and we either had to kind of double down or just cut losses, and we decided we would cut losses because to double down would require doing things that even if I were successful, I wouldn't be successful. Because you weren't getting what you wanted. Yeah, exactly. How long between the start and when you guys decided to, to cut those losses? Oh, it was probably three years. And we shopped it around a little bit. Uh, we talked to some some different companies. And even even that, there wasn't, in a lot of cases, there wasn't a way that we could get what we wanted uh, without having to make sacrifices. Like a lot of companies were like, hey, this looks awesome. We'd love for you two to move out to Colorado or move out to Chicago and, and be with us for the next like couple of years. And we're like, yeah, that's not really. <laughs> that's not what we're here to talk about. So we ended up just saying, hey, you know what? We're just, we're, we're cutting losses and each doing our own thing. So what happened next? 
all during this time, I had started to pick up more consulting gigs, mainly just through word of mouth, people who knew that I worked at J&J, people who knew what I was doing with Promofly. And I actually really enjoyed consulting. To be able to go in and look at a situation, make recommendations, make some implementations, not have too much bureaucracy, it was actually really fun and invigorating. And to have a couple different clients, it just has to make you think a little bit differently with each one. I actually really enjoyed it. So when Promofly shuttered, I said, okay, I'm just going to focus all of my time to, to consulting and maybe have a couple of side projects along the way as I'm, as I'm working on that. So that's what I did. I remember a day, probably about a year and a half ago, yep. I was sitting in the kitchen at Indy Hall and you came over with your laptop and you said to me, something is happening. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you describe a little bit about what was happening? I had started a photography blog that had to do with old film and old film emulations. And I had been at night just for fun, been going through and researching films, old analog films, and just putting everything in Evernote, just for my own personal benefit. So this is basically how to recreate the style of old analog film using new digital techniques? It was even simpler than that. It was, what was the style of old film? Uh, it, you would be shocked that films that were around 15 years ago there's almost no evidence of on the internet. Really? It's because a lot of these films died out right before right before the internet started to, to take off. Wow. And a lot of the, the, the companies that made them, I mean, they stopped producing them, so they'd have no reason to give a lot of context around it. And so there was a shocking little amount of information on the internet. Actually, my best source for this ended up being doing Google searches of old photography magazines. Google has actually indexed millions of, of, of magazines and you can search through it. And that's, that's how I found a lot of this information. I started to catalog it and, and, uh, and organize it inside of Evernote. Wow. Okay. So you're taking on the role of a historian, <laughs> of a journalist of sorts here, but for your own, for your own fun. You know, I had, I thought maybe, you know, eventually I'll get into analog photography. There were some paid filters that, that tried to emulate these, these specific looks. Mm -hmm. No one had any idea if they were doing a good job or not because no one had shot with these films in 20 years. No one even knew what these films were supposed to look like. So that was that was part of the impetus of, of all that as well. So eventually I was like, you know what, I've got I've actually been cataloging all this information. I should probably like put this online because that's kind of what I know how to do now, right? I know how to make WordPress sites and I know how to do search engine optimization. And I've spent a lot of time uh, on the Reddit photography community. So I have a little bit of reputation there. So I put, I started to put this information up and the response was incredible. I mean, a couple of my posts were some of the top R photography posts on Reddit, started to get some traffic. People were writing comments and thanking me for this. I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. I mean, at the time um, I had, no idea or ambition of even making a product around any of this. Maybe in the back of my mind subconsciously, I was thinking about the concept that, that you and Amy had kind of ingrained into me of you start with audience and then from that audience, you build a product. And man, let me tell you, that way is way easier. <laughs> it, it, way easier because it, it wasn't long before people were asking me to make products for them which had never happened to me before. Which, in marketing, that's an incredibly novel thing. I mean, at J&J, &J, no one was ever asking that we make 
you know, a, 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 a Tylenol that, that melts in your mouth that's a grape flavor. You have to convince people. That's what you they have want. to convince people that this is like the greatest thing that's ever existed through spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars of advertising. So this was like, this was a breakthrough to me. Yeah. <laughs> so we're sitting, I'm sitting in the kitchen and I'm, I think it was w with, with Rob Epler or someone, and I'm just describing what's going on with the site and the traffic that's starting to get and the search engine traffic that's starting to come in organically and people are emailing me and I want to start capturing some of it. And I think that's where you you were sitting right next to our table and kind of overheard the conversation. And you're like, oh, uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about this. So uh, if I remember right, yeah, you're telling me about you know the traffic, and I think you had put like sign up for my newsletter type thing. Yeah, super on there. generic, super generic. Hey, if you want to get more of this, basically the copy paste out of Mailchimp. Absolutely. The first thing we talked about was how can we how can we get a, a higher conversion rate, and I was using I think Rapidology. And my conversion rate was something pretty abysmal, like maybe 0.5%. It was really low. And we were talking about, well, what could we offer that would be really valuable to the person reading that article, really specific to it. And I basically put in a download, a free download of a cheat sheet. And the cheat sheet just basically showed all the different films that I was showing in that article. And I mean, it was basically like a PowerPoint chart really super easy took me like maybe an hour to do put it on there put it in the form it, it was a little bit of work i think I was using mailchimp at the time to have it to where it would actually like send the download link and all that stuff and instantly the the conversion rate went from 0.5 percent to i think somewhere around 10 percent. holy shit it went up <laughs> it went up a lot wow and i didn't even know this but apparently there's a lot of private photography communities on facebook that are actually massive like millions of people in private communities. People would say, oh yeah, I saw you were posted on such and such like private community and that's how I found you. Interesting. All right. So your conversion rate goes through the roof and I'm jealous. I think everyone listening is jealous. Well, if you think that's high, I got to tell you what I did next. <laughs> tell me more. Well, so, then, so the next thing I did is I said, as I thought, well, what if the whole point of the post was people were going there to download something? What would my conversion rate be then? This is when I started to get into actually making presets because everyone's saying, hey, when are you actually going to start making some of these some of these things that you're talking about so that I can actually use it inside of Lightroom? And so I made a post and it was 10 free presets and that post went absolutely through the roof. And the conversion rate on that post is upwards of 40%. <laughs> so I'm looking at the page now and this is a pretty lengthy page. I'm seeing a lot of that, though, is because of the 109 comments, people saying things like, <laughs> hey, Nate, thanks so much for these. And uh, I just found the exact thing I was looking for. Thanks for, like, this is incredible. All right, so a 40% conversion now of these downloads, they're getting the download, but they're also being added to your list. That's right. Were you interacting with those people at all? Or are they just getting the download and then that's the last they ever hear from you? What was what was going on there? People basically get an email from me maybe a week or so after just saying, how's it going? Would love to like hear what you think of it. You know, feel free to share anything with me. Hit me up on Instagram. I'd love to follow you back. Just kind of a little personal, personal email back. And a lot of people, a surprising amount of people write back to that. Actually, I've stopped doing that just recently because so many people were writing back. I was getting maybe 15 emails a day. Wow. Coming back from that. So what's your daily subscriber ad look like in order to be getting 15 replies? Uh, around 300. Cool. 
So you've got all these people on an email list. Yep. They're responding to you. Yep. They're saying, Nate, we want more. <laughs> what do you do next? So the next thing I did is I actually made a paid preset pack that had some things that people had been asking for in the free one. They wanted the ability to adjust the intensity of the preset. They were asking if I could have like custom camera calibration profiles. Uh, they wanted an installer so they didn't have to manually drag stuff back and forth. So I worked, I worked on that and then had a sequence of emails and launched that last October. To about how many people were on the list total at that point? Maybe 20,000. Okay. How did you figure out which presets to make? A lot of it is based on what photographers are shooting and what style they want. So the preset pack that I did first was more for portraits. It can be used for street portraiture or wedding portraiture. Um, it can be used for cityscapes. It's very moody. Uh, and then on the flip side, I have another preset pack that I'm revamping right now that's vivid and bold and richly textured. And it's great for landscapes. It's great for documentary photography and kind of that Nat Geo uh, style of really vivid, rich photography. So it sounds like you are able to sort of observe the landscape, see what's popular, see what people are trying to create and struggling with, and then we're sort of reverse engineering from there. Absolutely. And you talk about Instagram, people all the time on Instagram will message me and say, hey, how do I get a look like this particular other photographer on Instagram? Uh, maybe I'll say, hey, well, it looks like he's doing like these maybe three particular things, but thanks for the suggestion. I'll consider like having this in, in the pack that I'm working on that's going to be about landscape photography. Cool. That gives them a little bit of a, a look ahead, things to get excited about. Absolutely. Is there anything you've noticed about who's buying and has that adjusted how you focus, how you communicate with them? Yeah, I could probably do better to know more about my list. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people who are making the transition from iPhone photography to digital SLRs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who have uh, never shot or experienced analog film before. So that's kind of a very exotic idea to them. It is surprisingly international. I've had probably four people ask me if they can translate all this in Chinese. Yeah. Are, are they professionals? Are they hobbyists? Well, there, there, well, there's, a, there's definitely a mix. There's definitely a mix. Through asking people if I can follow them on Instagram, I've actually gotten to know some of these photographers on a personal level, which is awesome. Some of them have literally hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram. Some of them have no followers on Instagram, and I may be one of the one of the first. So I don't know if you want to get into it, but the, but the next thing I did after launching the presets was I've just recently launched a course. And I think it's been interesting to see that with the course, it's definitely professionals that are buying the course or want to be professionals. There aren't too many first-time digital SLR photographers. That may be just because of the price point, but I also think that there is maybe a little bit of a different mentality in terms of if I'm just getting into it, maybe I want just a quick fix. I just want that press one button. The preset does it. It saves me a ton of time. I don't really care about having all that expertise right now and building these things. But if you've done, if you've been around photography for a while, you've tried to do these things on your own and you failed, you see that I can show you how to do it. A course also sort of falls into the mindset of like professional development. So people that are, people can look at the price point and say, oh, this is going to help me sell my work in a certain way Absolutely. or accomplish work that I'm trying to sell or I've seen other people sell successfully and I want to be able to do. 
I want to talk about that course, how you launched it, what was different between the launch of the course versus the launch of the uh, of the product itself. Before we do, um, you've mentioned Instagram twice now, and I'm uh-huh. curious because we don't really talk a whole lot about social media and what role it plays in product sales, audience building, and things like that. But is it is it been useful for audience building for you? I, I think in some ways it has. I mean, it definitely doesn't have the scalability of Google and search engine optimization. I mean, that's still my bread and butter for bringing people in. But a lot of people who have purchased have been people that we both follow each other on Instagram or people that have messaged me on Instagram. I actually get a surprising number of personal messages through Instagram. I, people don't want to, I guess, use email, even though I give that out, you know, kind of all over the website or leave a comment. Instead, they choose to to message me on Instagram, which is which is pretty cool. Is it like the other messages I saw in your comments, like the thank you, you're awesome? Or are they asking you questions? People ask me questions. People ask me, uh, they ask me like, hey, based on looking at my page, which of your presets do you think would be best? Uh, people ask me, you know, hey, can you give me a deal because I'm a student? <laughs> um, or hey, can you, if I start tagging you in some of my photos, will you give me stuff free? A lot of times I do if they have enough, if they have enough followers. They asked me all kinds of things. Cool. So let's get into the new course that you recently launched. A lot of students come into it with, they, they already have in mind, this is the particular look that I want. I want it to have this particular feeling or mood or emotion that's evoked uh, from, from the way that I develop inside a Lightroom. And maybe a preset can get me 60% of the way there. But then after that, I don't know what adjustments and things I need to make inside a Lightroom or where to make them. Uh, and it's actually pretty confusing if you don't have a system for it. And so what I sell them is the system that's going to show them step by step how to be able to get, to get any look that they want. Gotcha. So this is not just how to use the tool, but an actual approach to to developing a style of your own. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many courses out there that, that go through every tool one by one and say, oh, this is what this tool does. This is what this tool does. That's completely useless when you actually get into trying to achieve a certain style. So I I say, forget about the tools for a minute. Let's just talk about what it is you want to achieve. And there's really only four dimensions to that. And I kind of take them through each dimension and show what they need to do inside of Lightroom to to, to do that. Was there anything that informed that approach to teaching it? (laughs) I mean, honestly, it's it's just the process that, that I used. And I think that there is some value in telling people this is the same process I use because most of these students have already downloaded presets or purchased presets of mine. So they know the outcome of this and they think, man, if I could get that same outcome with that same approach, that would be incredible. Proof is in the pudding. So what was different between launching your premium priced presets to a course? Yeah. Launching the course was much more difficult than launching the presets. And I think the reason for that is that with the presets, it's it's a pretty easy step from, hey, you've gotten free presets that you like, now get some even better paid presets. With this, it was like, hey, you've gotten some free presets that you like, now let me sell you a course. And it wasn't quite as direct. And so I learned that I had to do more to establish some credibility as a teacher uh, before people were willing to purchase. And in my mind, it didn't seem like it was that big of a difference. Like, hey, you know that this works because the presets work. But a lot of students were still like, or potential students, 
they wanted to see examples and they wanted to take example lessons and those sorts of things were really crucial. I mean, the, the biggest takeaway, the biggest lesson that I have from this is I really need to have more content on my website and more on-ramps on my website that are bringing people in who are interested in these materials. So they come into the funnel with an understanding of my expertise in this area rather than everybody coming to the funnel through the presets. Interesting. So it is really a different buyer in a way, someone who wants to learn versus someone who wants the one the one button result like you were saying. You know, I I had a, a whole almost like a whole blog post in an email that talked about, you know, what are the four building blocks of style and breaking down you know, what, what are the things that, that you need to be thinking about as you're editing your images and showing examples? And I had emails about what does it mean to tell your story uh, inside of Lightroom with your photos and, and giving examples of that. Educating people and giving them actually usable, helpful things worked remarkably well, especially compared to emails that we're just trying to sell. Emails that we're just trying to sell did terrible. And actually, and we, we've talked about this, I did actually... Uh, a couple of test launches leading up to the actual launch. I split my group into uh, 10 different segments and just went kind of one by one until I found uh, a launch approach that I thought would, would work for the rest. And the first one I did was an absolute disaster. And that I would call like the hard sell launch with lots of emails talking about, you know, how, how much this is going to help them and how much, how unique this is and how, uh, this is their only opportunity, and this is going away soon. It's like very focused on the product. It was very, yeah, very focused on the product itself. And in that campaign was the first time I actually got an email back from someone who was upset, like actually upset that they were receiving emails from me. And that was devastating. It was devastating to hear someone complain about emails I was sending because I, I, I want to be helpful to people. I want to provide things that are valuable and I got away from that. And it required a lot of work on the reader's part to actually get to the value. I was kind of hiding the value. So I would have like the email, the email itself would have all this crap in it. And then there'd be like a video link to a video that I thought was actually pretty valuable. And I learned pretty soon, no one's clicking on the video link. You know, just, just in general, people don't, the, the conversion rate of, of, of clicking through is much, much lower. So even if I got 20% to open an email with a really great headline, only like 3% would then click on the video link after all the other crap that was around it. So only three, I worked so hard on this video and then only 3% of people are looking at it. I thought, well, why don't I just take the con all the content that I had in that video link and just turn it into an email? I did that and still had around 20% you know, open, but I had a flood of emails back from people thanking me, saying, hey, this is great. I really needed to hear this. I've never seen, you know, I've never seen explanations like this before. Thank you so much. I'm like, aha. We gotta get to the we gotta get to the good stuff sooner rather than later. Makes a ton of sense. I mean, I, I'm just I'm very glad that I decided to do a couple of test launches to determine what was going to work and what wasn't going to work because that that first test launch was a disaster. How big is the list that you launched the course to? Uh, it ended up being around seventy thousand people. Woo. Okay. Yeah. How does it feel to send emails to seventy thousand people? By the way, it's a little nerve wracking. Yeah, <laughs> I try not I try not to think about it. Yeah. Too much, but. Inevitably, you know, I send it and then I try to find something to distract myself. Anything else. Because otherwise I'll just I'll just stay on the drip page and just like hit refresh, refresh, refresh <laughs> to like like get that data coming in and you know, see if people are are writing me back and if it's good or if it's not. It's something that 
that I'm still not used to. I don't know that getting used to it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, sure. So you launched the course to around 70,000 people. Uh -huh. Amazing. Uh, and what was the response to the course? Uh, the response was really good. I mean, I feel that, I don't know if you want to get into into numbers. That would be great. If you're willing to share, that would be awesome. I mean, so the the opening the opening week, it made like 25000 that's not bad. Which is not not bad. Did you do uh, packages, tiers, or anything? Originally, there was just one course, and you had to buy the whole thing. Uh, what I ended up doing was I split the course into four different modules. You could buy each module independently for $99, or you could get all four for 250 And I had a lot better response to that than when I just had the course listed at 250 because people are doing the math in their heads and thinking, okay, well, I know that I want maybe at least two or three of these modules. And if I buy them all at once, I'm going to save 150 bucks. Almost everybody purchased the whole thing, but there were a couple of people who, who just purchased an individual module. Yeah, They do work independently. I mean, they work better all together. And I made that very clear that it's best to have all four. So if, so if you're thinking about getting the whole set, you definitely should. But someone could still just get one of them and learn exactly what was claimed to be learned in that module. What else is planned for next? Like what's not now that you've got launches under your belt, what's changed? I would also like to eventually start helping photographers who are interested in having their own blogs, helping them figure out the right way to do that because I get a lot of questions about that sort of thing. Well, you've got some interesting things on your site too. I remember when you first showed it to me, part of the way you demonstrate the filter itself is you've got like a little scrubber it's hard in an audio format <laughs> to describe so like it's worth going to your website natephotographic.com and, and finding an example of this but uh, was that something you created that's something that there was a wordpress plugin for yeah it was one of those things where if you search for it you don't really know what to search for and so it's incredibly difficult <laughs> to find i must have searched for 30 minutes different phrases trying to find this particular particular thing it's called 2020 which is a terrible, it's a terrible, name. It's a terrible name for it. Um, <laughs> we'll but link it, that in the show notes too for anyone who's looking for it. Yeah, it's um, it's it's great, it's great. But there's a lot of things related to to, to websites that that professional photographers just don't know or don't understand, like search engine optimization, or should they use WordPress or Squarespace, or you know, should they hire someone to do it? How do they get people to the site? How do they do social? All these different, uh, all these different things. Like I get questions about a lot because it's kind of the where my two worlds collide like both my past and now and now working on this so i think there could be some some opportunity there but so i see three revenue streams presets course or courses and eventually affiliate by showing people how to set up websites and hosting and stuff like that interesting all right that's exciting yeah very cool so First year of selling products mm -hmm. to an audience that you didn't exactly intend to create <laughs> has been. It sounds like it's been a pretty cool adventure. Oh, it's been it's been amazing. It's been it's been incredible. It's so much fun. I love doing it. I love uh, working on it. It's given me the freedom that I wanted. It's it's the perfect business structure for for what I want. I get to stay home with uh, my wife and my daughter when I want to. My wife hasn't had to go back to work. We can travel and we just spent a month in North Carolina and then we just spent a week in uh, Colorado. So from a lifestyle standpoint, it's been absolutely incredible. And that at the end of the day is what I find 
the most motivating factor to make sure that this keeps going and this keeps doing well. I, I have no ambitions to have, you know, a Ferrari or to have, uh, you know, multiple mansions or all, all these different things that, that people tell you to to imagine. It's really just being able to provide for my family and spend time with them. What are some of the hardest parts about hmm. this over the last year? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you're on your own in a business, it's amazing how much more emotional it is than you think it's going to be. Like the highs are so high and the lows are so low. It's very easy to become depressed when something doesn't go exactly like you think or even become depressed when something goes exactly like you think and then you're thinking, what do I do next? Uh, so, I, for, I mean, even the past month, you know, after this launch and after a lot of late nights uh, working on the course and launching the course, for the past month, I mean, I've had very low energy. Uh, and I'm starting to feel it, like come back because I'm getting closer to some some other launches. But like the post-launch depression. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. And as stressful as a launch is, it's also a high. You have so much energy. I mean, it could be up to two or three in the morning every every night almost and just still have so much energy and passion. And then after that, you just have this massive crash. Crashing down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This has been fun. Like I really have enjoyed every moment where you've, you know, slid over the laptop <laughs> or sent me a screenshot in Slack to be like, "Look what just happened." Um, I enjoy those moments tremendously. I, I I hope you keep sharing them. And I super appreciate you and Amy, and I mean the ability to be able to walk over to you in any hall and show you something and get feedback. I mean, is is literally priceless to me. And I wouldn't be where I am as a business or a person if it weren't for Andy Hall and if it weren't for you. And I, you know, truly believe that. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Yeah. Folks want to follow you, check out your work. You've mentioned the site a couple times, natephotographic.com. Uh -huh. Anywhere else they can look, uh, anything else they should check out? Uh, if they're on Instagram, they can look up at first Nate. Sounds great. Nathan Johnson, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Cheers. All right, my friends, that is it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you learned a lot. And if you did, we'll be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode, a brand new guest, a brand new conversation. And if you don't want to miss that, make sure you're subscribed to this show in your favorite podcast listening app. You can find us just about anywhere by searching for Stacking the Bricks. You can also go to stackingthebricks.com, check out our latest posts, our latest episodes of the show. And if you don't want to miss a thing, make sure you're on our newsletter as well. That's it for this week. And until next time, keep on stacking those bricks. <laughs>